0: I just need to let you know uh, two things this morning. Firstly, is that our current COVID status has not changed, which means that we are still not permitted to have in-person gatherings. That means we can't have you here in the building with us on Sundays, but it also means that our small groups can't start gathering as the term kicks off. Many of our small groups will choose to gather online, and so please do contact your small group leader personally Um, to find out what's happening with your group and if you're not currently in a small group and would like to get slotted into one then please do contact Mark at the office and he will help to make that a possibility for you. If you don't want to be part of a small group but you would still like to be part of a text um, group which is an online community that only connects over messaging then you can also contact us for that and we'll make sure we slot you in so that you still feel part of the SBC community in the season. As a staff, we are also not all currently working from the office, and so if you would like to uh, meet with any of the staff in the season, it's really important that you do phone ahead to make an appointment, as we will not all be on site all the time. We can guarantee that there will be somebody on site between the hours of eight and two, and in the afternoons when we're not all at the church, you are welcome to make use of the on-call phone. Debbie will have that with you, with her, and we will be able to put you through to any of the staff that you need to make contact with. Lastly, before I hand over to Matt to bring us a finance update, I just wanted to let you know that you can sign up for our children's curriculum in the bag for the month of February by heading to the link that'll pop up on screen now. As we move into the New Testament, we are changing the way that we're doing things in the kids' ministry curriculum. As we work through the Old Testament, we work through it chronologically. But as we've gone into the New Testament, we are now going to start to address it more uh, thematically or topically. And so if you do see us jumping around, please don't be alarmed. We're not leaving out giant chunks of scripture. We promised to come back to it, but we thought it would be easier for your children to grasp things um, as uh, through topics as we move into the new year. That's it from me. I'm going to hand over to Matt. He's going to bring us a finance update and let us know what's happening in the pantry ministry.
1: Good morning, everyone. I'm really grateful you can hear this announcement because there's cause for great rejoicing. So the uh, giving for the month of November and December was very strong. And uh, we really are encouraged by this uh, for two reasons. Not only firstly that um, it encourages and supports the ministry of the church, but also it's a sign of just where hearts are at after a pretty bruising year. And we want to commend you, SBC, on your faithfulness to the Lord. Remember, giving is not out of compulsion or out of manipulation. It's a form of worship. And we give to the Lord because we're just so grateful for what he's given to us to enjoy. But also as a sign of worship in terms of faith and trusting him for the future. And so, well done, church. For anybody who's listening today, we want to continue to encourage you in your trusting of the Lord as your provider. And worshiping him with your finances. And just overall, it's been a great blessing for us. As a staff team and as a church to just see how God continues to provide through you. So a massive thank you. And on that note, it's just an update on our pantry ministry, which is pretty amazing. Over the last year, our pantry ministry has received 94,800 rand from you. And this has been a wonderful, wonderful way of supporting many, many needy families in our church. We're putting that money to really good use. Trust me, it is going out uh, to where it needs to go. But just again, well done, SPC. Um, if you want to support that pantry ministry, you can do so by getting hold of the office. But just overall, well done for worshiping God so generously, not just even with your heart, so your heart, but with your finances as well. So thank you so much.
2: Um, I want to introduce Joe Davey to you. I know many of you know her, but uh, she is our resident missionary. Uh, she has been serving the Lord in Libya and in Sudan before that. Last year, she uh, spent a year in the United States, uh, furthering her intellectual uh, capacity and getting a master's degree and all sorts of interesting things so joe is leaving to go to pretoria for her next adventure in two weeks she's gonna uh, come up now and just share what that next step looks like thanks joe
0: good
3: morning SBC it's just lovely for me to be with you again and as I finish my my holiday time here in East London it's just been so special to see people to relax and just to also keep busy with quite a lot of things that I've been up to um as we've gone through this sermon series in To Peter, one thing that Matt, Mark, and Joey keep telling us is that this was Peter's last message. It was, he was going to be leaving and he was going to be dying in the, pretty soon. And so he needed to pack this message full of the most important things he wanted to say to the people he loved. And that got me thinking, as followers of Jesus, what was the last thing Jesus said to the people he loved before he let, left the earth? And this is found in Matthew 28. It's known as the Great Commission. And I'd like to read it to you. Um, verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age." Sharing the gospel, discipling, teaching, training, these were all very important to Jesus, and he felt he needed to share that with his disciples before he left. And I want to obey that great commission, and that is why I have spent the last number of years going out to North Africa to share the gospel. And I want to continue doing that as I serve the Lord. As I tell you what I'm going to be doing over the next next couple of years, I can't really do that without introducing you to the who. There are three groups of people that I'll be working with as I go up to Pretoria. The first group are those working right here in South Africa. OM has many ministries around the country. The two you see on the screen are AIDS Hope, where they work with AIDS orphans and people and communities who have really been impacted by the HIV-AIDS um, virus. The second group are Diaspora Hope. That's a, a team in Cape Town that works with people from other countries, predominantly Somali people. They also work in UCT, on the streets, and in a number of different areas in Cape Town. OHIM has many projects around the country and I've made a video clip that will go out to the small groups that explains a little bit more about those. But this group of people have come from all around the world. A lot of people asked me when I went to North Africa. They said, "Joanne, why are you going away from South Africa? There's such a great need here." And yes, there is a great need. But the amazing thing is God is using people like SBC with the pantry ministry and other ministries, but he's also using people and bringing them from other countries to their mission field right here in South Africa. And we need to train those people to do their jobs well and to serve our fellow South Africans really well. The second group of people, and those are the ones that most people think of when they hear I'm going to do training, those are the ones from South Africa, but also the rest of the world, who are going to go and serve in other countries. Now, OM has a training called MDT, or Missions Discipleship Training, which is a six-month long program, and that goes on into internships. In that program, people are trained to go out to the rest of the world and serve Jesus and obey the Great Commission there. Now, um, this training in South Africa was the only one of its kind at one point, and People from around the world came here. It was very well known in operation mobilization circles. It has done so well that this training now exists in other countries. But right now, there are about 25 people packing their bags, saying their goodbyes, and getting ready to come onto a plane to go to Pretoria to be trained to go out. And I will be meeting that team in February. And we want to train them to do well when they go. South Africans are really well known as being well trained and able to cope on the mission field. And so we want to continue to do that. The third group are those people from South Africa in churches or other organisations that have recognised that OM has some good trainings. And in every training program we have, there's always space from people, for people from churches, from other organizations to join us. And my role as field training officer will be to make sure that those training programs continue and are of excellent, standard of excellence. We also want to make sure that there aren't gaps in the training that we give to people going out as we prepare them to obey the Great Commission. Why do I feel this job is important and and why am I going to be doing it? And I was reminded the other day of something that as a missionary, you can only reach, you can only share with a handful of people. And um, that's what I was able to do in North Africa. I was able to share with those around me, a handful of people. But as a trainer, you can train a handful of missionaries to reach a handful of people. And in my role as field training officer and also a trainer of trainers, I'm going to be able to train A handful of trainers who each will then be able to train a handful of missionaries who then will be able to share with a handful of people around the world. And that is multiplication. And yes, we want more missionaries out there. We want more people sharing the gospel. But what is also important is we want them to be well-trained so that they can serve God well. And we know that there are many disasters that happen if people are doing things that they don't know what they're doing. And we don't want to put them into situations, especially when they go to dangerous fields. And so I'm very excited to be able to be involved in training trainers to train missionaries and um, to go to the rest of the world. One of the things that I've been doing while here in East London is meeting with people who've partnered with me over the years, and I'm so grateful to them. I'm grateful for the people who've prayed for me consistently throughout the 10 years that I was in North Africa. I'm grateful for the people who encouraged me and sent me messages and and just said, keep going, Joanne, I believe you're doing the right thing. I'm grateful for the people who gave me practical help, like a car when I came to East London, or helped me design my prayer card, which you saw up on the screen. There's so many ways that people have served me and helped me, and through this partnered with me as I shared the gospel. And one thing you will notice I didn't mention, and I'm going to mention the elephant in the room, many people have partnered with me financially. And That is where my need is at the moment. There is a need for financial help. I remember as a teenager, I used to sit in church and listen to missionaries speak. And I used to squirm when I heard them because I knew they were hinting at the fact that they needed something or they weren't quite saying it. And I used to get so embarrassed for them. And now I'm in that position. And, you know, it is humbling to say to people, this is what I need. But, you know, it also is a great joy when people are able to partner with me. I don't see it as a sponsorship or a donation. It is a partnership where I'm able to go, yet people can help me in the ministry. My job is not transactional. I don't get transactional income. I'm not doing a job and getting money for it. Mine is based on gift income, where people are able to partner with me and share in my ministry. I get great joy in sharing with people as I know they come with me on this journey. When I first started the journey, um, one of the young people came to me. I think she was in university maybe, and she came to me and she said, Joanne, God has told me that I need to partner with you and I need to give you um, some, some money each month. And she said, I can only give you 50 rand a month, but that's all I have, but I'm so excited that I can be part of that. And I was able to share her joy as she joined with people who in the past shared and partnered for Jesus's ministry or shared and partnered with Paul as he went on his ministry. And so as I go, there is an opportunity for you to partner with me in many ways, including the unspoken one, the financial one. And those of you who partner with me through prayer, thank you for that. Please continue to pray that I will settle down in, in Pretoria, find a good church, and make friends. I'm very relational, as you know, so that's important for me. Also pray that God will provide a car. That's another need that I do have, that he will provide the finances. And for me, the most important prayer is that God will give me wisdom to do this job well, to train missionaries well well, so that they will be effective to the ends of the earth as they fulfill and are obedient to the Great Commission. Thank you very much, everyone.
2: We are going to pray for Joe right now. Um, I want you to know this is one of the most beautiful people I've ever met. Uh, she is a gift to our church. Um, she is faithful and she is obedient to what God tells her to do. And she's really inspirational. And I want to, um, encourage you. The first thing that Joe mentioned there that we're going to pray about is finances. So Joe is going to put a, a little graphic up on the screen for you for just a second to give you an idea of where Joe's at. So she's at about a quarter of the way of what she needs. Um, she's going to spend the next six months on the training base. So, uh, that's, uh, a little bit cheaper for her because they're giving her a really good deal. So we wanna get her up to like the light green part of that graphic, uh, which is just over halfway. And she we've got two weeks to do that. And I really wanna encourage you, even if you can only give 50 rand a month or 100 rand, it doesn't matter. Um, every little bit helps uh, when you are dealing with the, the kind of numbers that Joe is uh, needing over here. So we're going to pray for that now. First thing is, Lord, would you provide for her? You have always done so. And, Lord, would you stir my heart? Um, I want to encourage you, Anita and I, we, we give to, to missions. We don't earn a lot of money. We don't have a lot uh, of leeway. But it's important to us. And so we do it, and God's always uh, met uh, what we give. We we always have enough. And so if God stirs your heart, don't think so much about how much do I have, but rather, Lord, I'm going to be obedient to what you're saying, and I trust you. And and I've just seen time and time again God comes through. And the second thing we're going to pray for is a car. It's a very practical need, but it's important uh, God has provided a car for her over the last couple of months uh, in miraculous ways, and we're going to trust that the Lord's going to continue to do so in the next six months. It'll make her so much more effective, so let's pray for that practical need. And then the last one is, can we pray... As she leaves in two weeks' time, she's going to settle in into Pretoria, needs to make new friends. She'll do that in probably two hours, but still we can pray for that um, and uh, yeah, just settle into a new job and be effective straight away. So let's pray for those three things now, finances, a car, and her settling in time just for a minute or two. father we lift up your daughter to you thank you lord for placing her in our church thank you for calling her thank you for using her so powerfully over the last 10 years lord and we know that you will continue to do so as as you've called her to such an important task to train missionaries to go all all over the world lord you are also the one who owns the cats on a thousand hills and you always provide. And I pray, would you stir our hearts to join her? Lord, would you meet every need? May she get up to that green part in the next two weeks, Lord. And I pray that she would get up to the end of what she needs uh, in six months' time. Lord, would you provide a car for her? Um, Would you stir someone's heart, Lord, to uh, give her a car? We've seen you do that in the past. You've done that for me. Lord, I pray that you do that for her. And Lord, I also pray that as she goes in two weeks' time, would you give her friends help her settle well. May she be effective right from the get-go in what you've called her to do. In Jesus' name, Amen. Right.
1: So we're going to turn our attention to God's word now. And so, whilst we get things ready, would you open up in your Bibles to two Peter chapter two, verse one to three. Would you mind getting me a glass of water? <laughs> Thank you. Right. Very excited this morning to open up God's word with you. Trusting that the Lord is going to speak to us. And so 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 to 3 is our text this morning in our series, Priceless. And I'm going to read from the English Standard Version, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. But false prophets also arose amongst the people. Is not asleep. I want to open up with my first point this morning. Thank you so much. Is the purpose of Peter writing? And I want to remind us that, uh, as Joe so eloquently reminded us earlier, that Peter's about to die. And this, these are his last words to his flock. And they're a group of churches in what we now call modern day Turkey. And the one thing that Peter wants to focus on with these Christians is he wants them to live godly lives. He wants them to live for Jesus with all their might. He doesn't want them to lose their stability in their faith, but to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he says at the end of this letter. And so he's writing because he's anxious. He wants to guard these Christians against things that threaten their progress in the faith. And he's writing, knowing that we as Christians are prone to forgetfulness, not so? And he opens up this glorious letter by reminding them and us today what we have received in our faith in Jesus. Is we have received a faith of equal standing with the very 12 apostles. We received a righteousness from Christ. We have received everything we need that pertains to life and godliness coming through our relationship with Jesus And we have also received these precious and very great promises. Wow! He wants to remind us of what we have received in Christ. But then he goes on to say, we mustn't be careless. We mustn't be apathetic or passive with this faith. It requires us to add something or to supply it with something. And he summarizes it in those seven wonderful qualities. He also, as we heard from last week in Mark's sermon, He wants these people and us to remember to pay attention to the word of God, to scripture. He's very concerned that they do not forget the light of God's word in this present darkness. And now we're coming to perhaps one of the most awesome, and I mean awesome in the sense of awe-inspiring texts of scripture where he has to address false teaching. Now, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I did not want to preach on Second Peter because of this chapter. <laughs> it is probably one of the most uncomfortable and direct passages of Scripture you will come across in the Bible. And I almost didn't want to put it forward to the elders because I felt that this would be the most awkward thing to preach on. I don't like heresy hunting. I don't like heresy hunters. You've got some websites out there, some of you know them well, of men devoting their lives to point out what is wrong in the church and the false teaching that's out there. And I don't believe that's right. As one of my fellow elders so eloquently put it, he said, we need to be a church that is known for what we stand for rather than for what we don't stand for. And I think that's right. I think that's the essence and spirit of the gospel. It's good news. But there are times, friends, today... Because of the threat of this false teaching and how dangerous it is, it is to the progress of Christians that the apostles are forced to address something that is very painful, very difficult, and might I say even reluctantly. But they have to do it because of its threat. And I think <laughs> the longer this lockdown has gone on, the more I've seen in God's wisdom in leading us to Second Peter, because I think. If there's one thing that has happened to everyday people, you and me, is that our amount of time online has skyrocketed. Not so. Man, there was always a plethora of options of teachings out there. But now that we are online more than ever, they are in our face more than ever. And what is unhelpful is the very structure of Google and these search engines themselves. They have algorithms that increase the propensity of a certain direction of interest online. In other words, you start to engage with one topic, it will lead you down the rabbit hole of that specific topic and that specific teaching. And for Christians today, might we say, friends, now is the time more than ever that we are needing to be a people of discernment. We are needing to be a people of discernment because not everyone who claims to have a Christian ministry, my friends, must get our immediate trust. We have to be cautious, circumspect, And discerning more than ever. And so I want to make my second point this morning as to why is false teaching so dangerous? It's an important question to ask because there are some in the church at large that will say doctrine is bad. Doctrine means teaching. Any major teaching in the Christian church, they will say doctrine divides. We mustn't pay too much attention to it. I want to say to you today, you cannot read your New Testament without seeing the value and the preoccupation of these apostles with sound doctrine. Why is that? Well, to summarize it, it is for this reason. What you believe directly affects how you behave. I'll say it again. What you believe directly affects how you behave. And this is why Peter is drawing our attention this morning to this very painful topic is because he knows if these Christians get influenced by this teaching, it's going to damage their behavior. And that is going to do damage to the reputation of Christ. You see, when you are saved, my friend, Christ attaches his reputation to your life and we become his ambassadors in this world. And Peter and the apostles and the word of God is so interested in what you believe because it affects how you behave. Now, why is this so? It is because of how God has put us together as human beings. We work like this. What we believe affects how we think. How we think affects how we feel. And how we feel affects how we behave. And so, Peter realizes that two are inseparable. What you believe affects how you behave and that is why Jesus himself said when trying to discern a false prophet in Matthew chapter 7 verse 16 he says how will you know them you will know them by their fruits there will be an outcome to what they believe and teach the two are inseparable and it might take a bit of time it's not always easy but the fruit will be on the tree based on what it is rooted in what is what what do they believe what are they teaching and what these false teachers were doing in Second Peter, we can already see from the last two weeks, was they wanted to get rid of the second coming of Jesus. They were saying, the second coming of Christ, it's just a cleverly devised myth. It's a fallacy. And their teaching was encouraging sin in the church. And they were doing it in a very clever way. It was this getting rid of the second coming of Jesus was part of a much bigger teaching. And in essence, the teaching was this. It was a twisting of the doctrine of grace. Particularly the twisting of the writings of the Apostle Paul. Second Peter tells us at the end of this letter that they were twisting the Apostle Paul's writings. And we know that Paul had to address this kind of heresy, this kind of teaching in the church in Romans chapter six, verse one. People were abusing the doctrine of grace. And he he put it like this He said, Shall we continue sinning then so that grace may abound? By no means. He has to address it. And what these teachers were saying, these false teachers in these areas of churches in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, they were saying is this, don't you know, believers, that grace has set us free and has set us free from sin. In other words, they were preaching that Christ has died. Belief in his blood shed for you delivers you from the consequence of sin. And no matter how you behave, it will never change it. And they drew the false conclusion from that teaching Which is this, that therefore it doesn't matter how you live, you're free. Live as you please. Enjoy this life. Give into the appetites of your body. Don't worry about it because it doesn't matter how you behave, you're saved. It's a teaching called antinomianism. It is anti-law. And these false teachers would have pointed the finger back to the apostles and said, any call for self-control, as Peter was doing in, in chapter 1, any call to deny oneself, to deny sinful appetites and desires, they would have howled it down as legalism. They would have said, you're not under that yoke. You're free. Grace has set you free. Enjoy it. And particularly, their teaching was sensuous. It was, you can satisfy your senses. You can gratify these appetites. And particularly, it was around sex. I'm almost a bit abashed this morning, but they encouraged homosexual, premarital, adulterous, even incestuous sex. Paul had to address a a son who was sleeping in the church of Corinth with, with his father's wife. And... These guys were applauding that freedom, and Paul was saying, You're insane. Because what these guys were doing is they were preaching only what Christ had saved us from. They were not preaching what Christ had saved us for. And let me tell you, that's why they had to get rid of the second coming as a teaching. Because if there's one thing that the apostles have proclaimed in this coming of this glorious Jesus Christ, was that it was not just going to be a day of victory, my friend, it was going to be a day of it is going to be a day of judgment. And judgment is going to be upon two people. The unbeliever, the judgment will be whether or not they are in Christ. But for the believer, the judgment will be what we have done with Jesus. Now that we are in Christ, how have we worked it out? And Peter goes on in powerful language in, this, in the second epistle. He says, don't you know that this world is going to be burnt up and the works on it will be exposed? In chapter 3 verse 10. Far from what you do with your body not matching. No, Peter says, your good conduct, your behavior aligning with the Christ you have been put into has eternal rewards. He goes on in his first letter to these same churches. Don't you know that judgment begins with the household of God? Christians will be judged first and the world will watch to see what we have done with Christ. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, with our bodies, whether good or evil. Far from these false teachers trying to promote a false freedom. They were promoting a false, a true bondage, a bondage to go back to sin, which we were delivered of in Christ." And this is the perfect example to illustrate my points today, is what you believe affects how you behave. These guys wanted to get rid of the second coming of Jesus so that they could condone the things that they loved, which was sin. But anybody here today listening wants to take the second coming of Christ seriously, it will sober you. It will make you realize the way you make your decisions in your life, the way that you choose to deny deny yourself for the sake of Christ. Everything matters because on that day it is going to be revealed. And great is the reward for godliness. But great is the loss for sin. And it leads me to my third point today. Why does false teaching exist? It's a very important question because Peter says in verse 1 of our text today it says it's all, it's always been around he says but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you even denying the master who brought them it's always been there friends do you know how false teaching exists it's because satan exists Where did false teaching come? Right at the beginning of time. It was in the Garden of Eden when the serpent Satan came up to Eve and started to twist and to suggest false truth. And false teachers follow in his footsteps. False teaching, friends, exists because Satan hates Jesus with a passion. And he'll do anything. He can't get to Jesus in heaven, but he'll, he can get to the ones that follow him. And if he can bring disrepute to the name of Christ, if he can drag it through the mud, if he can get you and me to live in such a way that people laugh at Jesus, mission accomplished for Satan, he's clapping his hands with glee saying, yes. And why do I have to raise this point this morning of where false teaching comes from? If you understand that, you are able to look within a teaching at the most important thing. Remember, we wanting to be people of discernment. How do we examine this teaching that's maybe new or popular online or maybe starting to sound a bit different to what you've known to be true and, and the sustaining nourishment of what you've experienced through the preaching of church and scripture is you've got to go to what's being essentially the most important thing in that teaching. It is how is it addressing the person and work of Jesus. Remember my argument this morning? Is that Satan hates Christ? False teaching is an attack on him. And that's where we've got to look. If you want to analyze a teaching, there's some good questions you've got to ask yourself. Because these guys essentially, what Peter says, are denying the master who bought them. It was an attack upon Christ. And you must assist in two ways. Is how is this teaching Presenting the person of Jesus. Is this teaching presenting the person of Jesus as a one person with two perfect natures? Divine, he's the member of the Trinity. He is co-eternal with the Father. And are they presenting this Jesus as 100% human? How is this teaching presenting Christ? And there's a lot of old-fashioned examples to explain how the attack upon the person of Christ is the heart of false teaching. You don't have to go very far to some of these older cults like Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism. They attack the person of Christ. They do not believe in the Trinity. They do not believe that Christ is co-eternal and co-divine with the Father and the Spirit. They are preaching a different Jesus. There is no salvation outside of the God who is in three persons of which Christ is a full member of. We think about Islam. They refuse to accept that Jesus is the son of God. Therefore, they block salvation. Satan loves it. He loves to attack the person of Christ. But the other thing he loves to do is he loves to attack the sufficiency of Christ. The work of Jesus being enough for salvation and for faith. And that's where Catholicism over the years has drifted. What Satan loves to do is to move Christ from being the center, which Peter is preaching. Please hear me this morning. This is the New Testament message that God's divine power has given to you everything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. What Peter is saying is Christ is enough for you. But what's happening, in, 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 for instance, in Catholicism over the years was Christ got moved to the side. He was not enough in and of himself. You needed the merit of Mary. You had to pray to Mary. You needed the merit of the saints. You needed the Christ's merits of what he did on the cross was not enough. And so they moved him to the side. And so you started to pay attention to other things except him. I can go on. In our own city, there's... There is this teaching, I don't know what else to call it, but Torah Yeshua followers, they call themselves Christians reluctantly, they prefer to use the term Yeshua. They will move Christ from the sentence and say, you have to obey the law. And one of the most shocking conversations that I've had with this group was a lady said to me, no, you don't really need Jesus, he's just a good example of how to keep the law. Attacking The sufficiency of Christ. Generational curses. You need to have this counselor with these certain prayers. And if you don't pray these certain prayers of release and whatever, you never enter the full freedom of Christ. Let me tell you, that is nonsense. The reason why we have such an assurance of our salvation and of our faith is that Christ is enough for the believer to enjoy everything needed for life and godliness. But I'll go on to say this. is that false teaching can also just be not just an attack on the the person and and the work of Christ. It can be a fudging of that work, not a flat-out denial. In other words, there can be an overemphasis of good things becoming the obsession. For instance, you can have this overemphasis on the Holy Spirit. Everything is on this supernatural manifestations or on money. You hear someone preaching you only hear about money or being a better you these ways that satan comes in and to influence the church is it moves the work of jesus to the sideline you don't hear the gospel you don't need the call to be reconciled to god by faith in jesus christ you don't see the glory of who christ is at the center that all things were made through him and for him no 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 you will be moved to the side you won't even need jesus i'll tell you some of the scariest things that can happen is you can even have a prayer life without ever needing to use the name of christ It is Holy Spirit this, Holy Spirit that. You won't even need Jesus. Good things can be so overemphasized; they replace the centrality of Jesus. No, friends, today we must be discerning because the work of the Holy Spirit. How do you know this? The Spirit of Truth. How do you identify Him? Is He always glorifies Christ? He gives you Jesus. Not the false Jesus of the cults and the sects, it is Jesus of the Gospels. True doctrine makes you love Him and want to live for Him with your whole life. And so you must ask these questions How does this teaching handle Jesus? His person, his work. Does this teaching make him central? Do you even need him? Does it lead to greater worship of Christ? Does it bring him glory? Does it increase my dependency and desire upon him? Does it make me want to live and please him more? Does it make Christ enough for me? And does it make this gospel, this message of Christ's atoning work on the cross, absolutely essential for all life? Those are the questions you must ask. And I want to hurry on here this morning because uh, I want to point out in my fourth point today that this isn't easy. You have to be discerning because their, their methods of false teaching is very, very secretive. They are very subtle. I don't agree with people that think they can spot a false teaching just like that. If it was blatant, it wouldn't be persuasive. But today, Peter says in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. That is their modus operandi. They are subtle, like the father of all lies, which is Satan. They are also secretive. Jesus described them as sheep, no, sorry, as wolves in sheep's clothing. On the outside and in the beginning, they look like fluffy sheep like you and me. But inside, they are being driven by ravenous appetites. And what the essence of false teachers really are comes through in chapter 2 is they despise authority, Peter says. And the way they often operate is they love to flock like sheep with other sheep. So they will go to where Christians gather. It's always amazing. They'll never start their own ministry. They'll always try and leech onto an existing church and weasel their way in to get a following. And what they do is they'll join a small group and or they'll set up their own small group in the church. And without the leadership knowing about it is they will start to ask undermining questions about the teaching of the church and the integrity of leadership. They'll start to do Bible studies that are never expositional. They will never give you teaching from one start of a book to another. It will always be topical and it will always be bent towards a certain topic. And what they start to do is over a period of time, like wolves, they sink the teeth into those who are impressionable. Here it says, particularly in Second Peter, the new converts. <laughs> these poor guys have just gotten out of the world, just been delivered from gratification of the senses of, of sex and all kinds of revelry. And these guys are coming to them saying, Hey, don't you don't even have to deny yourself like that? Don't be silly. And these guys are experts at sinking their teeth into the ones that are vulnerable. Or sincere Christians, they'll paint their doctrine in such a way that it is appealing. But what are their motives? Peter says this morning, in no uncertain terms in verse 3. He said, in, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Friends, this morning, false teachers don't care about the sheep. They're not shepherds. They are sheep shearers. They don't love you or me. They don't want the welfare of the church. All they are interested in is how they can exploit you. And they want to exploit you for three things. The first is to satisfy their pride and their ego. It comes through. These false teachers despise authority. They see themselves as super spiritual. And if there's one thing that the ego loves to have, it's to have a following. Not so. They want to have this ego-boosting sense of power. And how does power have to exercise itself? Control. And a lot of false teachers will center you on their personality, on their soul ministry. They will say, you can't look anywhere else except this personality, this persona. And they love to control. They love to control the way you think, the way you act, the way you behave. It is hyper-condescending, hyper-control. And they do it because... They love it for their ego's sake. It's pride. The other motive is greed. They love gain from wrongdoing. Peter says, they will tell you, buy this holy oil from Jerusalem. Give to this ministry. If you you support this ministry, you'll get breakthrough. They'll use all kinds of false words to get your money. And I can't help but feel in Africa, what a travesty. The poor giving everything they have to these men and women of greed. And i even ashamed to say their motive can be sex. They have eyes full of adultery, Peter says, insatiable for sin. I, I'm, I could tell you some stories this morning of my wife who works in the medical profession telling heartbreaking stories of how women being raped by their pastors for cleansing ceremonies with their husband's permission. These men praying on the sheep to satisfy their own sexual desires. And the shocking thing is this morning is verse two, Peter predicts their success. He says, and many will follow their sensualities or their sensuality. Friends, let me tell you, false teaching is not something done in a corner where you almost have to look for it somewhere and to, to scout it out. It is successful. It is saying that it is going to be popular. Peter put, Paul put it like this to his beloved Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3-4. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And we'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We must not think that the sign of success in numbers means that it is truly truthful. And the personal consequences for false teaching, let me tell you, is devastating. Although they might be successful, they are not going to get away from it or away with it. In verse 1 of chapter 2, it says their false teaching is going to bring upon them swift destruction. Now, I want to say that this morning. Because I want to say to anybody here who wants to become a preacher. I want to say to you, please do anything else if you can. James is very clear. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I want to say to you today, there will be a degree of stringency on that judgment day. And the most stringent of all will be those who take up the pulpit and preach. And the greatest advice I can give you is what Charles Spurgeon said today. If you can do anything else then take up a pulpit ministry, do it. Do it. The only thing that must summon you to be a preacher in the church of God is to feel like you are sinning against God if you don't do it. Paul said this to these elders in my leaders in Acts chapter 20. He says, I am innocent of your blood. This morning, friends, every word that I say, I am going to be judged for. And the reason why I want to make this point is today when you watch YouTube and you see the the flashy stage lights and you see the awesome persona ministries and the Twitter accounts, it is so tempting to think, ah, that's something which I really want to do. It looks so appealing. Not so. But might I say to you today, this has got nothing to do with you. This preaching ministry has got to do about the people that God is entrusting to the pulpit. And if this is not about you getting to satisfy what you want to do and to exercise what you think you might be good at and your talent, even if it's your desire, I want to say to you, this is about the people who are listening to you. And every word that you preach, you'll be judged for. And if grace is not carrying you to the points of a pulpit ministry, it won't keep you. And rather prefer to let God so give you a ministry, miraculously, because he's qualifying you through a call, than you angling and working for it. Because at the end of the day, you'll be judged. But it's not just your own personal consequence for what is preached. These guys will bear that personal consequence. My, My point A today is it's the consequences for the followers of God. Friends, false teaching is what Peter calls destructive. Born again believers get led astray by it. And it leads to them denying the master who called them. It's not only the believers, it is those watching the church. Peter says in verse 2 Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. The world is watching you, Christian. The world is watching you, SBC, and they are getting a hint, a smell, a taste of the Christ you worship through your behavior in front of the world. And I'm I'm burdened this morning because how we behave either brings glory to Christ or leads his name through the mud. And the world, might I say today is watching Christianity, particularly in the West, and is laughing. In actual fact, they look at us and they say, you're no different to us. You're even worse in some instances. And this morning, I don't want to be severe. But I want to do what Peter's doing by stirring up a way of reminder. How you live, believer, either brings Christ glory or dishonor. And we don't want to be a people that... Those looked upon and laughed at. We want to be for the wrong reasons. We want to be a people that bear the fragrance of the one who offered up his body and blood on a cross for our redemption, for our salvation. We want to be a people zealous for the God and his glory who delivered us from our sin. We want the world to look on and see salt and light. And what we believe matters. And so... I'm going to wrap up this morning with my final two points. (sighs) I'm going to put my head on the chopping block and say, what do I think some of the false teachings are around today? Well, the first one I'd say is, like one commentator put so well, it is the charismatic movement being pushed to the extreme And being uncoupled from the word of God. It's the charismatic movement. And let me tell you, our church is charismatic in that we believe in the full operating of the gifts of the spirit. We believe in the outpourings of the spirit. We believe in the miraculous. But what is happening is a movement that emphasized the Holy Spirit has now become obsessed with the Holy Spirit. To the detriment of the word of God. And and that is why you'll find people drinking petrol and eating grass. You have this persona, these false teachers have so centralized the anointing, so centralized the obsession with these supernatural manifestations and blessings, in inverted commas, that people will do anything even contrary to the word of God to get them. That's why you'll have a movement in the US which was a great blessing to the church in its start, but it has now devolved to the point of some person standing on a stage with the with a replica of the staff of Gandalf smashing on the stage, stage saying to the to the spirit of racism, You shall not pass. They won't preach the Bible. They won't call you to the gospel that says all men are equal before God. And therefore, it's not me generally just preaching or declaring that the Spirit must go. It's we need to be instructed as to what the gospel tells us. But you won't hear it, you see, because they're not interested in the work of Christ. They're interested in the signs and manifestations of the Spirit. And however they can get them, that's how they want them. Another that is around in, in the... In East London is still this prosperity gospel. You cannot help but go on the, the sound waves. And friends, it's still there. This obsession with money. Can we just call it this morning as to what it? It is greed personified in this person preaching. And it is preaching to our carnal need to not be satisfied with what we have in Christ. When Christ promises to give us what we need, it's what we want. And the problem is today, friends, we are being, it is totally unhelpful. This hyper faith movement is destroying Christ's teaching of faith. And what it is doing is it is following a spirit of pride. I don't like doing this today. I don't mean to upset anybody today, but let's just be frank. This concept of me being able to dictate to God what he must give me is totally contrary to the apostolic interpretation of Christ's teaching on faith. Just listen to yourself for a moment. Listen to me. I declare that God, you're going to do this. I claim right now that you're going to give me my healing. I claim right now you're going to give me my money. I thank you. You've already done it. I just have to point out, friends, that is sheer pride. Pride against what? It is an elevation of your finite wisdom as to say what you need above the sovereignty of God. Let me tell you, that kind of teaching is going to lead to disappointment because, friends, God really does know better. And that teaching cannot cope with the concept that God's no is as good as his yes. And it leads to heartbreaking, terrible consequences to faith. Because it sets the believer up for sheer disappointment. God opposes the proud. Oh, but he gives grace to the humble. Where do I get my proof of that? Paul prayed three times. Three times he begged God to take away the thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is. It was probably an illness. Some sort of sexual temptation. We don't know. But three times he could have gone, God, through the atonement of Jesus, I'm claiming this breakthrough. I'm claiming this healing. I'm casting out this demon of temptation. What did God say to him? No. Why? Because he said, my grace is sufficient. God so worked in his nose so that Paul could be kept in his ministry. Can you cope with that today, my friend, that God might not be on your agenda, but he's asking you to be on his agenda. And let me tell you, it's the most liberating thing. To live with a sense of God being sufficient in his known to direct my life as well as his, yes. To trust him as a faithful shepherd. To say, I am asking you boldly, yes. I'm coming frequently, yes. I'm coming to the throne of grace, yes. Oh, but no, no, no. My ultimate posture is you are Lord and I rest in the knowledge of your wisdom and sovereignty shepherding my life. I have watched Christians who've had to hear the no to healing, but had had such a glorious end in their faith, in their sickness. It has brought family members to faith. God so spoke to the testimony of their death. You would never say it far more than the testimony of their life. You see, God works in the believer's heart far greater at times in the no than the yes. Can you accept that today? Rather than this nonsense, if I might be as bold as this to say, believe it and receive it, perceive it and, and receive it. You, all these things, let me tell you now, you come boldly to your Father and ask, but as Philippians 4 verse 4 says, it is a request. It is a request. You make your request be made known to God. And the peace that surpasses all understanding. Will God your heart and mind in Christ Jesus? That's where the peace comes from. Not in your willfulness to get what you want from God. But in your resting and trusting that as you ask, He's going to be good to you. Even if at first you don't like the answer. But there's one more that's on my heart this morning, which is perhaps, you know, it's no good looking outside. We, we're in it as well. SBC, we're in it. I'm in it. The thing that you and I are prone to, I think, is this church is, is the self-esteem or self-centered gospel. And this is what's rearing its head and it's so hard in the beginning to put your finger on it. So I'm going to do my best and I'm praying God's giving us eyes to see. But What is happening is a gospel that is being preached that gives you the sense that Christ has come to make me the person I was destined to be. He died so that I can reach my full potential in this life. I can achieve my dreams and aspirations. That is, in a sense, what the gospel is reduced to, is that it's there to make me a better me. And the kind of preaching that this produces is nothing more than motivational preaching. You'll listen to this false gospel. You will feel like you're in a pep talk. You're in some sort of conference that's getting you get up to get fit, to get healthy, to get your goals done. They are so good at motivating the world, but their goal is to make you the best you can be. Christ has died not that I might live for him, it's that he might live for me. And the kind of worship songs, remember, worship always flows with what you believe. If you listen to the kind of worship being produced by this gospel, you won't hear much about Jesus. You'll sing a lot about you. Me and I, you won't even hear the name of Jesus in some of it. It'll be God, it'll be this general thing. And what God will do for you and who you are in him, full stop. Not what who you are in him qualifies you to do for him. You won't hear that. It's what he must do for you. And can I say to you today, I think, I don't like doing this, and I might be wrong, but I think that part of this coronavirus pandemic is to expose this teaching for what it is. You see, there's only one way that you expose this teaching, and it is through suffering. If there's one thing that's happening in this coronavirus pandemic, it's watching your dreams go down the toilet, not so. Your finances, your great social connections, your great achievements. Let me tell you, God seems to be stripping away. And if you are left without being able to cope, that Christ is enough as you watch your life being radically and perhaps forever changed, it's exposing something as to what you believe the gospel is really about. If you think God has come, that you might have a healthy, wealthy, perfect Wonderful life where all your dreams are met. Good luck, my friends. This is about Jesus. This is about the glory of his name. And the way you find life is not that you can accumulate your dreams and aspirations. It's that they die before the God of heaven. And what you find is how he ministers to you, how he leads you, how you lose your life for him is you find true life in him. You find that rather than you thinking what is best for you, you find your not only identity, but your purpose and your whole modus and your whole compass for living, being for this Jesus. And it sets you free. He wants to take your money. No problem. He hasn't taken himself from you. He wants to take your reputation. No problem. He hasn't taken himself from you. Everything that he is is enough for you, you. You find yourself in him. You find your purpose to glorify him. It is all about Jesus. If any man seeks to lose his life for my sake and the gospel, will find it. But if any man seeks to save his life, he will lose it. Friends, today, don't get this gospel to be whittled down through all these weird teachings of glorifying self. Everything about me, everything about my success, everything about my struggle and my journey. It's just all about self. Let me tell you, we need to die to that gospel. We need to be resurrected to the God of glory and Jesus Christ saying, in me you find life. I can see by my fellow people in the room that I'm over my time. (laughs) But what's the remedy? What's the remedy this morning? My final point is this. Is what Mark preached on last week. Is we have to pay attention to the word of God. It says, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Verse 19 of chapter 1. Do you know how you spot a counterfeit? This is what Mark Wood taught me. Is you handle the original so much. That when you come across the counterfeit. You know immediately this is not. This, is, this, is, this isn't the true thing. I love that because it's not you being negative and going to the heresy hunters' website and saying, watch out for this, watch out for this. That's not what we like as a church. We want to be so steeped in the message of the Bible and handling so often that when you get that counterfeit in front of you, you're able to say that that's not true. The perfect example are tellers. I watch them when I go to the shop. And if I give them cash, which is not often an occasion these days, I'll be honest, they will go through every note. Have you watched them do that? They are so good at handling Money. They know the true currency so well that when the false comes up, they pick it up immediately. Friends, there are two ways to counteract heresy. The one is systematic reading of your Bible. Cover to cover. Please, even the genealogies, the parts you hate. Let me tell you, God speaks to, the, to, speaks to you through that too. I was chatting to Nikki, our children's pastor, um, this week. You know what I've realized in reading the Bible after all these years? Is I've developed... An increasing sense of what does it sound like and feel like? What's its texture and tone? And you get better at better, starting to go, that doesn't sound like Scripture. I don't see that in Scripture. But you see, if you don't know what's in Scripture, how do you know if it's not supposed to be there? More than ever, just read your Bible from cover to cover. But the other part of it, and this is what we're doing in Second Peter today, is the systematic preaching of God's Word. I am not against topical preaching. There's an absolute place in the life of the church. But we want to be under Scripture. We don't want to come on scripture and think, this is what we think you're saying, scripture. And I'll use all these verses to tell me what I think it is. No, no. Expository preaching. And I hope you can see the vulnerability of it. It's from the text. We are coming under the word of God. And as the word of God comes to us, so we give ourselves back to it. And that is what we need in church. It takes years. It's a lifetime's work. But it is the safest, most balanced and holistic way to develop faith to the degree that they can resist false teaching. And I want to ask you, are you interested in this? It's not the most flashy way to do ministry, I can tell you that. We could have a few smoke smoke machines and I could wave a few Gandalf staffs on the stage and everybody going, that looks fantastic. But let me tell you today, what's going to save you and prepare you for Jesus is you giving yourself to his revealed words. In the examining of preaching from the word of God and the reading of this glorious revelation given to us as a gift until that. Mark preached last week, until Christ comes, we give ourselves to what he has revealed to us. We know the count of it because we know the truth. That's where freedom is.
2: We're going to respond to that courageous sermon now. I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes. We need to humble ourselves, and every one of us is susceptible to to this. We're not above it. And I think right now, let's just ask the Lord quietly in our hearts to protect us and reveal to us where there might be something that we've listened to or held to, which is not actually in His Word. Proverbs 3.16 says, Trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. And in a world full of false teaching that we are all susceptible to, we need to trust in the Lord to protect us, and we need to spend time with Him, We need to spend time in his word. So I want to ask you just in the quietness of your own heart to pray a prayer of commitment again to him. Be careful what you allow yourself to listen to, church. Pray for discernment. Pray that the Lord would keep your path straight. Trust in him. Depend on him. Pray for a greater passion for him and and his word. May you fall in love with it. May it come alive to you. May you spend so much time there that the Lord would help you and make it easier for you to spot when the counterfeit is around. Lord, I want to pray for us as a church this morning. I want to pray... I want to thank you that you have revealed your truth to us in your word. You have not left us alone to meander and wander through this life, falling into every pit without hope, but you have given us your word as a lamp to our feet. And if we are humble and surrender to you and walk with you, you will lead us safely. trust is in you this morning. Keep our paths straight before you in Jesus' name. Amen.
4: Yeah a moment as the music plays to just continue to dwell on the word powerful message today the truth is that when we remember the cross we remember that everything that we need is you we don't need money we don't need fame because lord you promise promised that you'll provide all our needs And our greatest need the salvation of our souls was won by you. So we bless your name this morning. Just take a moment, church. Worship in your homes. Continue to dwell on what the Lord has been saying to you. If not for you If not for you Lord, I come I confess Bowing here I find my rest Without you I fall apart you're the one that guides my heart sing these words Lord I need you Lord I need you oh I need you every hour I need Oh God, how I need you. Where sin runs deep, your grace is more. Where grace is found, is where you. you oh god how I need you oh god how I need you
2: Father what beautiful words we declare them to you this morning Lord we love you we need you above all else thank you for your faithfulness every single morning your mercy is made new to us you are walking with us and you will never leave or forsake us we are safe in your arms and we surrender to you this morning as your church Lord we say come and fill us with your Holy Spirit empower us for godly living and may we bring you glory each and every day this side of heaven may we bring you glory until you come back in Jesus' name, amen. Have a wonderful rest of your Sunday, church, and we'll see you again next week.